In case you didn't know, that's my wife. <laughs> and go paladins. <laughs> tailgate Sunday. We all love a good tailgate, don't we? Because we all love a good party. Interesting how the tailgate got started. I don't know if some of you have studied it like I have this week, leading up until this Sunday. It is a tale as old as time. Would you believe that its origins are even credited as far back as ancient Rome? When Caesar would give food to those gathered in the arena to watch the gladiators fight. Its American origin goes all the way back to the Civil War. As individuals who were aware of a skirmish would go to the battlefield picnic basket in hand and set out to watch the boys in blue fight the guys in gray. They would cheer on the side they wanted to win. In terms of college football, it didn't come into being until 1869 when Rutgers was playing Princeton. People had the first ever tailgate, but it didn't really become a fad until the 1920s. It continued to evolve, and it left that place where I actually first encountered a tailgate, wherein you actually just showed up with your car and let your tailgate down, and you used that as a makeshift table where you served fried chicken and hand biscuits and cake and sweet tea, and you, you called it good, didn't you? And to an all-day, sometimes multi-day affair that now involves mobile homes rolling in early in the week, planned menus that have been put in place weeks, if not months, in advance, featuring different courses and paired wines, so much so that now the tailgate is as much importance as the football game itself. Did you know that 30% of people that attend a college campus on a Saturday don't even go into the stadium, but instead tailgate the whole day through? I would argue that because of the tailgate, not only is college football now something that everyone can relate to, I hate to break it to you, some people don't like the game in and of itself, but also it is a place where everyone can flourish. Now, it came to my attention, what would you do if Jesus showed up at your tailgate one Saturday? I think some of you might be taken a bit aback. Someone amongst your party, of course not you, would shout out, hey, everybody, look, it's, oh, Jesus. As they put the cup down, filled with whatever beverage it might be, and probably kicked it in the direction of some innocent bystander to their immediate left. They would probably think that the party had ended, that the ultimate party pooper had arrived, that not only was the tailgate going south, but so too the rest of the day's proceedings as it would lead to an inevitable defeat of your favorite team. But as I was thinking about this, I think that some of you might be pleasantly surprised at what, what Jesus would do if he showed up at your tailgate. I think Jesus would taste the food. I think Jesus would 
play a little cornhole or a little ladder ball or can jam. I think Jesus might even taste up a beverage or two. And if certain beverages ran out, well, Jesus might just... We'll get to that part later. You see, Jesus is to life what the tailgate is to college football. Because of Jesus, everyone is welcome and everyone can flourish. Just like one of my dear friends said, we might go 0-11 in the stadium, but I'm telling you, David, we've never lost a tailgate. Jesus brings that same hope and promise to everyone. That in him, everyone not only has the opportunity, but the means for your life to flourish. Now follow me now, because Jesus was a practicing Jew. That meant that as a young man, he went to the synagogue and learned what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, just like any other Jew. And in those places, he surely heard the first psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 1. See if you recognize these two verses. But those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do flourishes. That's what Jesus learned as a child. It's also what Jesus taught when he launched his earthly ministry around the age of 30. See if you recognize this scripture coming from John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life abundantly. He wants your life to flourish, and ultimately, Because of his life, his death, his resurrection, this is the legacy that Jesus left. We can see that in the earliest of letters known as epistles that were passed around the first century of church. Now, an interesting man by the name of Paul, he's also known as an apostle, wrote such a letter to the church at Ephesus where he said this word that not only has key meaning for our larger series, Rooted, but is also something that I hope all of us are meditating on daily, if not memorized. And I pray that being rooted and established in God's love, you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. To grasp how wide and deep, how wide and long is the love of Christ. Yes, that's what Jesus was taught. Yes, that's how Jesus lived. And yes, that is the legacy he leaves for us today. That you being rooted in him may flourish. Now, in this scripture that's before us today, coming from the Gospel of John one who was an apostle and a disciple of Jesus, we see that because there were no tailgates in Jesus' day, he had to go to the next best thing, a wedding. A wedding was one of the most important celebrations, if not the most important celebrations of the first century, especially in Nazareth, where there wasn't a whole lot else going on. 
Jesus and some of his new friends, he called them his disciples, show up at a wedding. Maybe because they're invited, or maybe because Jesus is the first wedding crasher in recorded history. Regardless, when Jesus and his buddies arrive, there seems to be some kerfuffle. You see, Jesus' mother, whose name is Mary, is likely the wedding coordinator for that affair. Now, folks, I've had a fair share of dealings with my career in weddings, and I'm here to tell you today, you never cross swords with a wedding coordinator, especially when she's your mother. But this is exactly what happens. As Jesus and his friends arrive, at that very same moment, the wine runs out. Now, this might not seem as a big deal to you all. You would just say, well, send somebody down there to the Piggly Piggly Wiggly, get a few boxes of that cheap $5.99 wine, and bring it up here, and we'll call it good. But when someone hosted a wedding in the first century, it was the utmost expression of hospitality. And for anything to go awry, whether that be a shortage of food or a shortage of beverage, meant that they were implying inhospitable conditions to their guests, some of whom were gathered there for several days even before the wedding ceremony itself. And that, my friends, would produce what would be the worst thing to ever experience in the first century. Shame. Now, shame is something that you and I don't really operate in and deal with every single day, but here's how I would define shame. Shame is something that you know about yourself, but you don't want anybody else knowing about you. And if they did and you knew it, you would likely avoid them at all costs and possibly even considering moving to different towns. And this is exactly what Jesus enters into. It's a situation that is ripe for shame, and yet Jesus, because he's voluntold by his mother Mary to fix it, son, comes into a situation where he does his first ever recorded miracle. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm a little bit of a loss for how the English translation presents itself. It, It makes Jesus sound like he's condescending. It makes him sound like Frozone from The Incredibles when he cries out, Woman, where is my super suit? (laughs) You're good. But that is not what Jesus is doing. See, Mary sees greatness in him before Jesus is ready to express it to others. And in so many words, it's Jesus who's saying, Mom, not yet. But old Mary persists because Mama knows best. And after all, we all know how this ends. If Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So Jesus steps forward. And Mary tells all those that were under her charge as the wedding coordinator, do whatever he says. And did you know that in the miracle that follows, Jesus doesn't just turn water into wine. But far more, it's the truth that Jesus shows us how God will not only show us that he wants us to flourish, but will give us the means to flourish. Here's the first one. And you'll have to forgive me because in my sermon prep this week, I discovered that uh, I was a poet and I didn't know it. So all of the sermon points 
have a little rhyme and rhythm, but I hope it's because they'll stick with you a little more. The first one is that Jesus transforms our shame into God's fame. Jesus transforms our shame into God's fame. The hosts of the wedding, the parents, were probably sweating bullets, thinking that they were going to have to endure the ultimate shame of being inhospitable hosts to their family and their friends. And Jesus, as one who's right there in life with them, senses this same possibility until he takes a tabloid cover from the news and Nazareth of that day that would have read in all caps with exclamation points, wedding runs out of wine, and he transforms it into a headline that read instead, the wedding where the wine never ended. See, that's what Jesus is able to do with our lives. He's able to take that intimate detail, concern, mistake that is to our shame, and he's able to transform it into God's fame. He's able to take something that you think that you have no other use for other than something as basic as ceremonial cleansing as the Jews all did that day, and he's able to show it that it becomes a part of your story. That one day you say, not only do I own it, but I'm here to say, I am what I am, not in spite of it, but because of it. You see, that's how God works. That's the power that is the redemption of Jesus Christ. He's going to take that shame in our hearts and he's going to turn it into God's fame wherein we use it. We use it as an extension to say, look what God did. He made me flourish with the worst part of my story. That's number one. This is number two. Jesus takes what's unfulfilling and turns it into something thrilling. Now, I'm really proud of that one. Did you catch it? Jesus takes something unfulfilling and turns it into something thrilling. Now, you might remember from reading the scripture that there were a certain amount of canisters of water that were there for the Jewish rite of purification. Does anybody remember or perhaps looking here on the platform know how many were presented in the Gospel of John? There were six. Did you know that to the Jews who were reading this letter by John, that would have been so annoying? It would have been annoying to them as a typo and a memo would be to you in your office. It would have been annoying to them as it is to you to see a preacher that's wearing wrinkled clothes on the platform. I hope that's not me today. It would be annoying to them as it would be to you if you walked into a room and you saw somebody's rug on top of their hardwood floor and it was just slightly off and you just kind of went, can I, can I fix that for you? John, can I, can I take that number six and can I, can I bump it to number seven? Because seven was the number of perfection. In seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. And more importantly, on the seventh day, God rested. It was well with him. And so true is it for his instructions to all of the Jewish people that on the seventh day, you will rest in the shalom of God. You see, there's reconciliation. There's peace. There's hope. 
But for it to be only six, it makes the Jewish reader go, "Ah." and that's why when Jesus, taking those six things and turns them into wine, effectively says, I am the seventh bottle of water. I am the fulfillment of the law. You feel unfulfilled with six guys. I get it. It's because human works and human effort can never achieve for you something that the heart desires, which is holiness. But guess what? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the light. Through me, there is fulfillment of the scripture. And more importantly, there is fulfillment in your heart. I'm going to take something that for you for millennia has been unfulfilling. And I'm going to make it thrilling. Now, this was a surprise to them as much as it is to you today. Because you're thinking holiness. That's boring. That means long, dorky cloaks. That means funny-looking hats. That means taking vows of silence. That means sequestering yourself away from everything that is fun. But you're wrong. Jesus says holiness is best represented by the fullness of life, by you being in the middle of the party, by you having the best time ever. And so for all of you who are struggling, thinking, I just feel unfulfilled. I feel like I'm stuck on six, and if I could just get seven... All would be well. Jesus looks at you and says it can be. I'm here. I'm the seventh one. I'm what was lost and now is found. And if you but accept me, I'll make your heart whole. That's not all. There's one more way in which Jesus makes us flourish. Now, this one's a bit of a journey, but follow me. I don't consider myself a bard yet, so I'm trying. Jesus blesses us with more than we can use so that we never become a recluse. Okay, that was pretty weak. But let me read it again. Jesus blesses us with more than we can use so that we never become a recluse. Now, that might be a pretty lame rhyme attempt, but it's the best part of the Scripture. In my Pickens County math, I deduce that Jesus blessed that wedding party with 180 gallons of wine. 180, people. Now, that is more than any wedding party could ever drink. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but that doesn't mean my fraternity brothers and I wouldn't give it our best shot. I I get it. I get it. That's not the point. It's more than they could possibly drink so that they would invite other people into the party. John's not only writing to a Jewish audience, he's also writing to a Greek audience. He's not only writing to people that have been spiritually devout for millennia, he's also writing to the newly spiritually curious, those who are investigating Jesus for the first time. And John's saying because of Jesus... Not only is there enough wine to go around and then some, but here's the part I love the most. When the wine was first tasted, the people proclaimed with excitement and wonder, this is the best wine we have ever tasted. You see, it means that for the spiritually curious, the newcomer, never never the latecomer, 
that they don't come and experience the leftovers. They're not treated as the redheaded stepchild. They don't get the $5.99 box wine from Piggly Wiggly. No, they get the collector's choice. The reserve wine that's aged for 30 years and the people bring it out of the cellar and they have a sommelier that presents it and it's got dust on the bottle that it's so well aged. And when it breathes, it fills the room with an aroma and it makes your taste buds sing. And Jesus is saying that whenever you come to the party, don't worry, you still get the best of what I have to offer. And my, isn't that exciting news for a church like ours? That while being Baptists, which I interpret to mean professing Jesus Christ as our risen Savior and following him together, we also can have the audacity and the belief that we can invite anybody here to the party and we can still profess over them the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come if you were raised in some other Christian tradition. Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopalian, Catholic, or other, welcome here. The best is yet to come. It means that we say as much to those who are of another religion, whether they're Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, or other, we say, welcome here. This party's for you. The best is yet to come. And it means even to the people that are unbelieving, those who say, I am a nun, I don't believe in anything, or I have serious reservations, we too look at them and say, welcome, we're glad you're here. The best is yet to come. But more personally for you today, you who made an effort to come to church, thank you, thank you. You who chose to be here in the sanctuary and participate in a worship service. Thank you. Thank you. It means you have a personal invitation today. That if you do not know Jesus Christ, that if you do not know Jesus Christ, he is saying to you, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. The best is yet to come. And he issues to you a further invitation saying, if you know me personally, If I can become your Lord and your Savior, I will become the answer to the question that you are currently asking, that I will make your life flourish. If it were me, and I wanted that, I would would say something like this in prayer. I would say, God, I want to flourish through a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Can he enter my heart today? But those are my words. I want it to become your words. And so whether that's during this invitation hymn that follows or in the days that follow, I I want anyone and everyone who dares dream of a life that's flourishing to invite Jesus into their heart for the first time or to invite yourself into a deeper walk with him so that not only do you live life to the full, you live it more abundantly. Now, as we stand and we sing, you can come and receive prayer from me. I'm I'm here for you. That's not your thing. I'm available 24-7. That's also my thing. So is it the thing of every minister on staff? You saw Caroline. You've met Tyler. You know Jennifer. 
But we also are surrounded by so many amazing deacons. It's their thing to help you in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All you need to do is but ask. But however you ask, I invite you to stand and sing. This our invitation to him as you respond.